0: I don't think I'm on. I'm on. I'm new to the Brittany mark, so this is new. Um, of all the weeks that uh, we are, could preach, you know, we work really hard on our preaching roster. We kind of look at the best uh, Dividing of the chapters when we're going through a book and we kind of plot which weeks they're going to be. This is the week that I happen to be able to preach. This is the first week that we've been back in this building for like uncountable. No one was even keeping track anymore. And uh, it's also baby dedication. So um, I'm meeting a whole lot of you for the first time. So welcome. And today's portion of scripture is the 10 plagues of Egypt. Just, you know, if you could choose a passage of scripture to preach on, this probably wouldn't be it. But here I am. And uh, I also haven't done this since like pre-COVID days. So thank you um, in advance for being gracious listeners. And thank you to those of you who are joining us online. It's really great to be with you. Um, and I wonder how this journey is going for you. As Raj said, we're in week three of this Exodus journey. And for me, the real highlight has been our life group, if I'm honest. Um, it's just been such a wonderful um, place for honest conversation. And it's been amazing, not in the little, you know, let's just look at this text and put it in a little neat box and tick all the right answers, but to um, actually sit with a portion of Scripture and also be honest okay to be uncomfortable with it while we're deciphering what it really means for us. And so I really encourage you, if you're not in a life group, we, we say that really often because we really mean it. If you're not in a life group and you want to connect to what God is doing in and through the life of this church, life groups are our lifeline, and I really encourage you to get connected to one. This week, my one of my girls asked me, Mom, what are you preaching about this week? So I said, preaching on the 10 plagues of Egypt. So she said, you no, know, she knows that story. And, you know, we speak, spoke about how most people know that story, and it's, you know, the movie, and it's like, just like it's a commonly known story, and it's a great story. We, we both agreed it was a really good story. So she said, for your sermon, are you going to tell that story to the people? So I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and tell the story, but then I'm going to, and she interrupted me. She said, you're going to see how it relates. I said, that's exactly it. <laughs> But I said, that's actually the really hard part, though, because I can tell the story. The story's there. But to try and work out how that story of the 10 plagues relates to us today, that's the trickier part. She said, Mom, you know what? Most people, at least half will already know how it relates to them. So even if you think of nothing else to say, just tell the story and they will work out the rest. So if you are one of the half of us who already know how this relates, I would love to chat to you afterwards. But if you, like me, are still trying to work it out, uh, then let's dive into uh, this. And and really, that's what we're gonna do today, to try and see how this story, this quite bizarre passage of scripture relates to us in a postmodern, mid-pandemic emerging from lockdown world. So let's dive in. Maybe before we get into this portion of scripture, you can join me in a brief moment of prayer. God, we come before you as um, just humble learners of your word. Would you speak to us as we look at this portion of scripture, somewhat bizarre, somewhat hard to understand, yet we know that this is your living, active word that is precious, precious, alive, powerful, and relevant to us today. Won't you help us see how it relates to us as we dive deeper? Amen. So who has authority? Who has authority over my life, over your life? Who can really tell me what to do? Who can tell me what to do with my time my money, my sexuality, what I do with the environment, if I use plastics, if I have to wear a mask, if I have to get vaccinated, who really has authority? Now, I don't know where you stand on contentious issues, and we're not short of contentious issues at the moment, are we? But when it comes to contentious issues, we're all asking, who has authority? Because we're all trying to make the right decision. I don't know where you stand on contentious issues, but I know that we're all looking for some kind of authority because we want to make the right decision. And so whether you're finding that in in, uh, information, and information is your authority, or a person you're looking for, an expert, or possibly you're finding that within yourself, we're all looking for who really has authority, Well, welcome to one of the first kind of interactions or conversations where uh, this question is being debated. Who really has authority? And spoiler alert, it's God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh. And we're going to see that he has authority. And secondly, we're going to look at how he expresses his authority in the story of the 10 plagues of Egypt as well as today. So we step right back into the story of the Hebrew people, an immigrant minority group who are being grossly abused under, slavery, under the powers um, of the Egyptians through slavery. This is the story of the Hebrews under the wrong authority of Pharaoh being rescued and being brought under the right authority of God. And all while God showing Himself to have supreme authority over the, the Egyptians, their structures of power, their small-g gods, and their oppressive rule. So we found ourselves, as, we, as Raj said, in. Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to go through to chapter 10. And I promise you, you do not want me to read the whole thing. A few of you are here for baby dedications. You're hoping to go and have a nice lunch after church. If I read this passage of scripture, there will be no lunch. There will be no buri rolls. We will be here. So please uh, bear with us. I'm not going to read the whole thing, as Chloe said. I'm going to try and tell you the story. And there's a bit of a pattern. So we can kind of do a sampling and, uh, and show you the pattern, and you'll get an idea of how the whole thing works. So the people of Israel, the Hebrews, they've been under this very oppressive um, Egyptian rule. They've really been enslaved for about 400 years. They're a nation within a nation. They've grown to be a people group of about 2 million people. And in fact, their conditions have recently worsened because they have been told that now they will no longer be given straw to reinforce their bricks with. And straw was very important. If you made bricks without straw, the brick would fall apart. But they needed to find straw now in their own time. So it was harsher working conditions, longer working hours, and uh, it was just looking like the situation was getting worse and worse, consistently hopeless situation. And through all of this, God has been at work, beginning to work a plan to redeem his people out of bondage. And he's chosen Moses one of the Hebrews, to deliver his people out of bondage. And Moses, as we've heard in the story, actually grew up um, in the Egyptian palace, and he's someone that understands both the kind of Egyptian way of life as well as the Hebrew way of life. Last week, we saw that God revealed himself to Moses as I am, that Hebrew word to be, both past and present and future. It's an amazing name. After revealing his name to them, God says that uh, uh, Moses and his brother Aaron need to go to Pharaoh and they need to say, let my people go. And they, they arrive in kind of the royal courts and they walk in and they say, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh actually says to them, uh, show me what power your God has. And um, God had told them before, take your walking stick, your staff, and it will turn into a snake. And it does. It turns into a snake right there and then. The Pharaoh's magicians Copy, they do the same thing, and their walking sticks, their staffs also turn into snakes, except Aaron's staff eats their staff snakes. Welcome to the beginning of just the bizarre happenings in this story. So tensions are mounting all around, and today we're going to read the, how the confrontation continues as God offers Pharaoh the opportunity to get into what God is doing. Let my people go. And these confrontations continue as Pharaoh refuses, which is basically a disdain for the Hebrew people um, and their so-called God, as Pharaoh sees it. We're going to kind of try and sum up what happens in these next uh, uh, three chapters, four chapters, um, of the the first nine plagues. The tenth plague is going to be next week. Roger's going to look at that um, kind of in its own message. But I'm going to read a sampling of this story just so that you get an idea of it, and then we're kind of going to look at the pattern. So you can follow um, on the screen from Exodus 7, verse 14 to 21. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand at the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve you in the wilderness, me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will go weary of drinking water from the Nile. And (laughs) Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as Yahweh commanded, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff, and he struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, And there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. This makes day zero, whenever that was, well predicted to be two years, three years ago, look like child's play. You ain't going to have no little bucket under your tap that you can at least drink that, or, you know, catching your dishwater or your drain water. No, everything turned to blood. These nine plagues that we're going to look at today, or the ten plagues, the ten plagues are kind of bookended by these two, heavy hitters. Yes, they were all terrible, these plagues, and they were, they were all quite destructive. But the first one and the tenth one were particularly so. And you see, God, the first one is kind of a, 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 an aimed target at life. God showing he is God over life. We're going to look at that more when he struck the Nile. And the tenth one was God uh, really showing Pharaoh that he is God over the Egyptian understanding of leadership which pharaohs at the time were seen as a deity. And kind of those are the number one and number 10 are the heavy hitters. And the rest of them in between were still very specifically aimed at kind of maybe small g demigods, if you will. And we're going to kind of look at them as we go on. I'm going to read a quote from Derek Morphew, who helps us see that each of these plagues were a very carefully devised plan for God to say, I am God, not these small g gods that um, the Egyptians are following. You can read along with me. The Nile is believed to be the sacred abode of the Nile god, Hapi, or Hapimon. In the first plague, the Nile god died. In the second plague, frogs, the symbol of Hequit, the goddess of fertility, multiplied beyond control. In this fifth plague, the livestock began to die. The bull was sacred to Apis cows to Isis, and the ram to Ammon. These were all kind of small g gods of the Egyptian people. The representations of three Egyptian gods were exterminated. In the seventh plague, heaven, the home of the gods, was cast into disarray. One of the highest deities in Egypt was Ra, the sun god. In the ninth plague, Ra was blotted out. Most important in Egyptian belief was the fact that Pharaoh and his firstborn son, were held to be of divine conception. This was the basis of his authority. The death of Pharaoh's firstborn in the ten plagues in the tenth plagues represented the death of a deity. And again, we see that the, the plagues were a carefully devised plan of uh, and God's way of saying your gods, Egypt, are defeated. And there's a pattern to how these kind of 10 plagues unfold, and they kind of one after the other follow a very similar pattern where uh, Moses and his brother Aaron, they approach Pharaoh, they ask Pharaoh to let his people go, and it's kind of like that's an offer of mercy, like come under what God is doing. Uh, Pharaoh refuses, and there's this judgment. So we see a request, a warning, an offer for mercy, refusal, and judgment. And these plagues in case you have forgotten, if you watched the movie a little while ago or haven't read this portion of scripture in a while. They are the first one, the water of the Nile turning to blood. The second one is frogs, which actually is probably the one that I relate to the most. I grew up on a farm in very northern KZN. We didn't actually live that close to water, but for whatever reason, little baby frogs kind of frequented, especially our garage, and we would take our shoes off and leave them there. And why my parents kept making us do this, I'm not sure, but leave our muddy shoes in the garage. Once little Nikki in grade one, sitting there just at the end of the stage, and I felt this little thing in my shoe, and I whispered to Cylindile. I said, Cylindile, there's a frog in my shoe. (laughs) And in our spare room toilet, and this is just a public apology to any guest who ever slept in my parents' spare room, and if you had an interaction with a frog in the toilet, I'm just so sorry. But this is not frogs in your toilet and frogs in your shoe. This was like frogs Everywhere. Like that is just nightmarish. And it's the same with the third plague, which was lice or gnats. The same with the fourth plague, which was flies. The fifth one was um, livestock pestilence or death, which we read about in that quote. The sixth one was boils. The seventh was destructive hail. And this was an an interesting one because by this time, seven times, now this has happened where Moses has gone to Pharaoh, he said, Let my people go, or this thing is going to happen. And Pharaoh refuses. By this time, Even some Egyptian people had kind of thought, hey, this guy, Moses, what he says is going to happen each time, it happens. So when he says a destructive hail is going to come on this land, best we bring in our animals undercover and best we bring our workers to come in. And Moses said that to him. He says, bring in your livestock, bring in your workers. And uh, there were some even Egyptians who listened to Moses by, by the seventh plague and it says, everything that was left out was killed, both man and beast. And so you can imagine all the crops were also totally destroyed that were left. The eighth plague was locusts. The ninth plague was darkness. Darkness. And the 10th plague we're going to look at next week, the death of the firstborn children. So a few things differ, although there is this this, um, very specific pattern that goes on. Sometimes, as I said, the Egyptian magicians kind of copy the plague. There are times that uh, Pharaoh seems totally unfazed. In fact, it says when the, the water of the Nile is turned to blood, Pharaoh turns and he barely takes it to heart and his the water supply of this nation that he is overseeing has turned to blood he barely takes a hard. at other times he seems quite flustered and it seems like he's going to let them go and sometimes he even says okay take your men you can take the men and you can go and then he changes his mind the other times he's desperate and he calls Moses he says plead with your god that you would release, that he would stop this plague and um, and Moses does it on numerous occasions he pleads with god that the plague would end the plague ends and Pharaoh changes his mind he said no actually I am I'm, not, I'm good. Not gonna, when there's some respite, he decides he's not going to release the people. So there is a lot going on in this story. You might be just asking, what is going on here? God gives us a little, uh, lets us into his motive a little bit. In chapter 7, verse 5, he says, Though I multiply my signs and wonders, Pharaoh does ask them for a kind of to prove the power by working a miracle in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of God, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So as I said, this is really a story of the Hebrews being under the wrong authority of the Egyptians and God stepping in, And them being brought under the right authority of God. And God is showing the Egyptians and the Hebrews, and he's showing us today as we read the story, that God has authority. He's showing us that he has authority over life at this one bookend. Remember that the plagues that are bookended by these two heavy hitters. And the first one is that that God has authority over life and that God has authority over leadership. And we look at if we look at this one that God has authority over life. When when God struck when Moses struck the Nile with that staff and the water of the Nile turned to blood, what we don't see in the kind of just quick reading of the story is that to the Egyptians the Nile was everything, like their whole life, their lifestyle, their economy, their uh, their uh, Kind of channels for trade, the way that they they geographically were set out, the Nile was everything to them. And in fact, the Nile was represented by um, the goddess Happy or Happymon, like we heard in that quote that I read. And uh, the name is not lost on me. I always want to read that name as if it says Happy, but it's Happy, I'm told. But Happy um, is is kind of represented fullness of life to the Egyptians. So the Nile. The river Nile represented to them the full life, the good life, fullness of life. And by God coming and turning their source of fullness of life from water to blood, he is essentially saying, there is nowhere apart from me that you can find fullness of life. It's futile. Don't look anywhere else. I wonder if we can pause and, and maybe read this story a little bit into our lives today. And I've been really challenged this week um, doing that, and I hope that you will do the same. And I wonder what you have built your life around. Where are you finding fullness of life, the good life, happy, that illusion that we can find fullness of life in anything other than God. Maybe you're not a Christ follower here today and you're just checking out, checking us out or you're watching us online and maybe this can just serve as an opportunity to reflect on where do you hope to find fullness of life, the good life. But for us who follow the way of Jesus, where we know that it's only in God that we can find fullness of life, but yet in our very fast-paced and distracted lifestyle, we can forget that. I forget that sometimes and I look for fullness of life In other things, and the creep is very subtle. Where are you gonna find the good life? Sometimes it's you think it's gonna be the, you know, for me, sometimes I think it's like the, the holidays that we can have, the experiences that I can give my family, the future I can provide for my children, the memories I can create for my family, all good things, but that's not fullness of life. It cannot offer what God can offer. What is that for you? You just hope, you know, if you could just renovate your house, if you could just have a slightly extended wardrobe, or a little bit of a fitter body, a little bit more expendable income to do X, Y, and Z. And as I say, it's not bad things. could be good things. Comfort for your family, uh, adventure, your marriage. Possibly it's a career. Possibly it's a relationship or a set of relationships that you have built your life around and said, "Yeah, if this flourishes, I will have fullness of life. And God would say to us today, there is nowhere apart from me that you can find fullness of life. So we are... You know, sometimes it is. it can be uncomfortable. It can be painful when God exposes those things. For me, it has been this week, especially as I've reflected on this, to actually go, where are those places that I have kind of sought fullness of life that is not in God? Just like it's uncomfortable to, for the Egyptians when God is showing, where have you, but you know, you've placed your trust inordinately in this thing that cannot deliver. It can be uncomfortable, but God does it in his mercy because in the long run, we need to be finding our um, fullness of life in God. So we see that God is showing that he is God. He has authority over both of these bookends of the spectrum of these plagues that we see. Now let's look at how his authority is expressed in the story and how we can come under God's right authority. So God expresses his authority in two ways, in mercy and in justice. And uh, you would have heard Raj say before that there's often two pedals that you're pushing down when you are looking at a a kind of a more complicated um, kind of concept. So if God was riding the authority bicycle, he would be pushing down two pedals, one of mercy and one of justice, mercy and justice, mercy and justice. That's how he expresses his authority. The first way he expresses his authority is mercy. He does this um, in two ways. The first one is an offer of amnesty. To Pharaoh. You might not have picked it up in your first reading of the story or even in, in the movie, but you know, sometimes we can say, um, you know, why all these plagues? Like, why was it necessary? Couldn't they have just gone to, God, uh, gone to Pharaoh and said, can you just let our people go? And they did. The first time they went with the, and the staff turned into the snake, that was a simple ask. There was no um, thought of paying or punishment for these, the terrible abuse that Pharaoh had um, <laughs> oppressed the Hebrews with. He offers him an opportunity to change his mind. And every time that Moses goes to Pharaoh, there is an opportunity to change his mind. Pharaoh doesn't take that offer. He doesn't take that gap of a second chance, a gap to fall in with what God is doing. But God offers us that gap. We can come in line with what God is doing time after time. Are you stuck in maybe a decision-making rut or a bad habit that you can't kick? Or maybe you've even been offered an opportunity to serve God in a particular way. He's asked something of you, that you that's been easy to say no to. Possibly even the opportunity to say yes to following him with your life, and you've refused that offer. The, the invitation to come under what God is doing comes again and again and again, like waves on the shore. Come under what I'm doing. The, Jesus, in uh, Matthew 11, he speaks about God's authority so oppositely to the way that uh, Pharaoh expresses his authority. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you've said no to God or you've said no to something that he's offered you, the offer comes like waves on the shore time and time again. So God expresses his authority in mercy by offering amnesty to Pharaoh each time giving him a gap to say yes to what God is doing. And he also does it by defending the weak, stepping in, defending the weak. And I think sometimes, as I said, we can get caught up in how bad and severe and destructive the plagues were. And as I said, it is okay to be uncomfortable with Scripture and to be uncomfortable with not really understanding, God, what were you doing here? This is hard for us to get our head around. But what we must remember is that this whole event this whole set of plagues and God stepping in, is God hearing the cry of the Israelites. For reasons too numerous and and mysterious and, and kind of layered to get into right now, God has chosen to reveal himself to and through the Israelites, who right now are a group of people who are being grossly abused under slavery under the Egyptian powers. And God says that he has surely seen the affliction of his people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. This was a humanitarian crisis of the highest order. And God is stepping in. This tiny, insignificant nation is being rescued and defended and redeemed by this incredibly powerful and authoritative God. And God is doing then what he still does now, rescuing, redeeming, and defending. And I don't know how this relates to you today. And again, maybe we can read the story into our own lives. Maybe there's a part of your life that you feel like, actually, I need God to express his mercy by coming to defend me and rescue me. Maybe it's an area of your life that you feel like um, you need rescuing in. Maybe there's a relationship that you that needs rescuing. You need God to step in to defend you, to f- fight on your behalf like he did for the Israelites. Or alternatively, maybe there is a pocket of people or an area of pain which just like contentious issues today we are not short of. Humanitarian crises, crises of the highest order all over where God can say, I have heard the cry of my people. Are we crying out to God to come and and step in, to redeem, to rescue, and to defend the weak? Because he is a God that does that. And he may just not only want to rescue us in areas of our own lives, but also to use us as he defends the weak. I'm not going to read into your life what, you know, you can fill in the blanks as to what you think those areas are, possibly crippling anxiety, fear of the future, burnout after this incredibly difficult season. God is a God that steps in. When it looks like an impossibly difficult situation, God steps in and he rescues, he redeems, and he defends. I'm going to read Psalm 145, verse 14 to 17, and maybe just quietly in your heart, you can prayerfully bring those areas, whether they're in your own life, all pockets of pain that you know are out there in the world, in our city, our nation, wherever they may be. And bring them before God as I read these. You can follow with me on the screen. The Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. The eyes of all look to you in hope. You give them their food as they need it. When you open your hand, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in everything he does. He is filled with kindness. So God expresses his authority in mercy by offering amnesty and by defending the weak. And then God expresses himself, his authority in justice. In God's own words, these plagues were a judgment of sin through Pharaoh's actions through Pharaoh's authority. God brings justice to the intolerable treatment of the Israelites and the complete and utter ignoring of God on their part. Judgment is a very tricky one to talk about, and and, uh, that's why the Bible is so wonderful, because uh, when we're going through a book of Scripture, we kind of have to look at harder things that we maybe wouldn't uh, choose, but we get to talk about them and to really dig deep into what God might be saying. Tim Keller puts it in quite a wonderful way when he speaks about judgment, and you can also follow with me on the screen. Many people in the modern West are not troubled by God's mercy because they don't accept the idea of a God who judges. They want a God of love. But a God who does not get angry when evil destroys the creation he loves is ultimately not a loving God at all. If you love someone, you must and you will get angry if something threatens to destroy him or her. As some have have pointed out, you have to have had a pretty comfortable life without any experience of oppression and injustice yourself to not want a God who punishes sin. These plagues are actually... A move of justice. Yes, God is judging sin in Pharaoh, and this is also a foreshadow for us of God's capital J, judgment of sin. But just like in this instance, in the Exodus story where God offers mercy each time, that is how God practices justice. He never brings a judgment without offering mercy. That is God's version of justice. He brings uh, his justice with this offer to turn to him. And before each offer of judgment in this story, he, um, he offers mercy, a chance for Pharaoh to choose God's way and forego the plague. And it's the same with us. God will wrap up human history on this side of eternity, and there will be some sort of a judgment. We, we don't know exactly what that will look like, but one thing we do know for sure is there is not judgment without an offer for mercy sometimes over over speak about this God who judges and we maybe even grew up with a hard idea of God who judges but there is no judgment without an offer for mercy that is God's way of justice and he offers that mercy to us we can just like that the the judgment his judgment is satisfied once and for all in the person of Jesus on the cross and we can say yes to that This is a picture of justice and judgment, but it's also a picture of mercy, and it's an invitation to say yes. God's authority is perfect. It's beautiful. It's so safe. It's trustworthy and wonderful. And he uses his mercy and justice to invite us into his authority, which is the true good life. So would you hear these pedals through this story of these plagues? Hear the pedal of of mercy and justice as an invitation to you to come and build your life under the authority of God. Now take us back to happy, that illusion that we can build our lives around something else that will fulfill us and take us to the good life and give us fullness of life. What is that thing for you? would you come and build your life around God? Only he can bring us truly into the good life. This sometimes is uncomfortable where he shows us where we have uh, sought uh, true fullness of life in other places, but he does it in his mercy. We see his authority here in this story. He has authority over life. He has authority over leadership. We see it on the cross. We see it in the empty tomb, and I hope that from today and going forward, we can see it in his word and see it in our life today. I'm going to ask Raj to join me on stage and maybe say a landing comment or two and land for us in prayer.
1: So I think um, it's such a tender description of the love of God, and hearing Nix's tenderness is a tender mum sharing something i think that describes the tenderness of god's offer over and over and i just hope that this morning we could hear that from the heart of god that when we say yes to god we first always receive a tender invitation to his fatherly affection to his motherly care and i say motherly because numerous times jesus says how i'd love to gather you as a mother gathers her her chicks he always wants mercy before he wants to bring judgment. And it is his pattern, starting in Exodus, continuing through to today. And today, I suppose, is just an opportunity. I'm sitting in my chair there listening, and I'm going, there are places I need to receive his mercy. I need to say yes to his authority so that I can enjoy his full life. And we all have them. Some of us, it's a first-time moment. You go, I just need to say yes to the ways of Jesus. I need to say yes to following. I need to say yes to receiving that overarching grace, the opportunity for a new life. And for others of us, it's an aspect of our life where we're putting undue pressure on something to give us the good life, and it's crumbling underneath that pressure because it wasn't designed to do that. And I'm grateful, thank you, for uh, helping us to see that, that it's the details of our life and it's also the full spectrum of our whole life under which we should come to and allow God's authority over. And so I'm going to let you pray, and then I'll dismiss us. but I'll stay up here while you do that. Cool.
0: Let's pray together. Jesus, I'm reminded that when we build our lives around anything other than you, just like the Nile, the Nile can dry up. There is no eternal water source. But you said, those who drink from you will never grow thirsty again. You are the one from whom streams of living water flow. We want to build our lives around you. We want to find fullness of life in you, Jesus. Where, where we have uh, looked in other areas for fullness of life and for, for ultimate happiness, we want to turn to you. And God, where where you have offered us invitations to, to partner with you that we've refused, or even to come to you and follow you that we have easily dismissed, thank you that those tender offers for mercy come time after time like waves on the shore of our life. And God, thank you for the picture in this portion of scripture that yes, although there is judgment, that your pattern of justice is always an offer of mercy. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word, and we pray that uh, even as we go from today, that those things, that, those nuggets of truth that are for us, that they would stick with us, and uh, we would be able to kind of chew on those things as we go into our weeks. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.
1: Amen.